Nahum again will be in the same uh, verses. Uh, I told the story many times when I was a, <coughs> a young Christian and uh, zealous for study and uh, gathering all the information. Uh, I was a little, uh, a little uh, took some liberties at times with my thinking, just trying to put things together. And I had a, a, a godly mentor who was very quiet and soft and reserved in his speaking. And I would hit him with these questions, you know. And uh, he got in this habit. He would always say, Deuteronomy 29, 29. And that verse says, the secret things belong to God, but the things he has revealed belong to his children uh, through the generations. And that was his gracious way of saying to me, Larry, there's some things that are operating in the secret counsels of God that he didn't reveal to us. And so uh, be careful how you wade into those things. Um, the dynamic between God extending mercy and exercising wrath and justice and against sin and wickedness uh, the dynamic at work in the counsels of God as to when he does that, when he acts upon that, when he unleashes his wrath against sin and when he is long-suffering, uh, I think those are things within the counsel of God's own will. Uh, it may, uh, it may, he may endure long in one life and he may not endure long at all in another life. Uh, so it's, it really is a kind of an intimidating thing to even think about this. I'm sharing with someone this morning as well uh, the message this morning and the one tonight, and there'll be some overlap in this, but uh, my heart in that uh, is particularly uh, for Christians to find, uh, find a new appreciation for the merit and the value of Christ's suffering uh, for mercy. Uh, if you're a believer and you've been saved, then that should, the, the danger that you were in apart from Christ ought to magnify the, the preciousness of grace. I used the analogy this morning that uh, if, you're, if you're swimming for recreation and you're a very good swimmer and you throw a, someone throws a life preserver in the water, you'll swim away from it. You don't need a life preserver. But if you don't know how to swim and you're water over your head and someone throws a life preserver in, you're gonna have a much greater appreciation for that life preserver. And so I think sometimes as hard as it is to preach about the wrath and the vengeance and the justice of God, um, and we ought to understand that it magnifies mercy, the mercy we receive for believers. And at the same time, it serves notice to those who are outside of Christ that they are indeed walking a razor's edge. Um, they don't know when their days on this earth will be over and when they'll stand before God. And, and just the, the idea of God reserving uh, his wrath and reserving this pouring out of his justice on that person is a terrifying thing. So, so we're looking at this tonight this morning I tried to concentrate mainly on Nahum's, the first chapter of Nahum and the phrases where Nahum says of God, God is these things. As I was sharing this morning, uh, he mentioned several there, at least seven, but God is jealous, verse 2, avenging, verse 2, wrathful, verse 2, slow to anger, verse 3, great in power, verse 3, good, verse 7, and then, then he's also a stronghold in verse 7 as well. And so those are all phrases that Nahum says God is these things. And I think that's, an, and the reason I want to make that distinction is because tonight I'm going to talk about what God does and what God does is rooted in what God is or who God is. And as I said, Nahum is not giving us an exhausted list, uh, an exhaustive list of the attributes of God. He's not defining and describing for us the entirety of the nature of God. Uh, he mentioned slow to anger here. 
Uh, he mentions uh, a, a couple of good. So he mentions some of those things, but he doesn't get into love and merciful and, and all those things necessarily. So, so he's carrying a message uh, really for the Ninevites and the Assyrians that God's judgment, your wound is incurable, he says later on. So the, the decree for the judgment of this, uh, this empire has gone out. There is no turning back now. But at the same time, he's offering comfort to Judah, God's people, who has received his mercy, that their affliction is coming to an end. So God has used them to afflict his own people. And so Nahum has this twofold purpose here, to pronounce the judgment of God upon the Ninevites, the Assyrians, and also to reassure the, Jew, the, the, the Israelites or the, uh, or the Jewish people, the, those in Judah, that God had not abandoned them and totally given them over uh, to captivity to the Assyrians, so he was going to deliver them. So I just want to share some of those. Uh, I want to read again. I don't think we'll, we're ever in error to read the text, but just read the first 15 verses. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm and is his way in clouds of the dust beneath his feet, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Behold on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah, pay your vows for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is completely cut off. Uh, it's interesting, uh, verse 15 uh, is more directed towards Nineveh. And then um, as that unfolds, I think you see specifically how God's description of the judgment that is coming upon Nineveh. But I just want to look at, uh, like I said tonight, what the Lord does. Uh, verse 2, obviously I shared this morning, he's a jealous God, but he's also an, an avenging God. So uh, an avenging God uh, avenges. Uh, he he in, indicates vengeance. The Lord, verse 2, is an avenging and wrathful God. And so he takes vengeance, he says, on his adversaries and reserves wrath for his enemies. So God's vengeance, he, he says here, is exercised against the adversaries, those who are against God. 
God is not exercising a vengeance against uh, those who have trusted in him. In fact, he says later on, they're a refuge. So this vengeance, God, uh, God avenges his honor. He avenges his people, the blood of the martyrs, as it were. God avenges and vindicates his own name and his own glory against his adversaries. I couldn't help but thinking how uh, they had lined up. In fact, Psalm 2 uh, uh, listen to Psalm 2 because I thought, kept thinking about this the whole time I've been looking at Nahum. But in Psalm 2, the psalmist writes this, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. No restraints, essentially. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And then he concludes, Now therefore, O kings, Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so you really see there that psalmist really clarifies and you see it again as I shared this morning in Isaiah 10. The Lord, the Lord takes vengeance against his adversaries, those who are scheming in our day. Uh, our generation, those who are <coughs> adversaries to the Lord and to the truth of God, they are not getting away, though it looks like they are su succeeding and their influence is spreading abroad in this nation and even in the world. Uh, they are adversaries of God in every way. Uh, they not only do not know God, but they exalt themselves against God and they disregard the word of God and the commands of God and they, and they, and they push this farther and farther outward and they rise themselves on these high plateaus and think they are unreachable by anybody. They can't be brought down. I think Nahum is saying to us here, the Lord is a, an avenging God and, and he will avenge, uh, seek his vengeance as it were, for the honor of his name against those who were his adversaries. So the bottom line is adversaries of God do not get away scot-free with their sinning against God. Uh, that's a sobering thing, and really the world needs to hear that, but particularly our nation's leadership uh, needs to hear that as well. Uh, you can devise a lot of different things, and, and you can, by your, by your policies, you can attempt to throw off the restraints that God has put in place to keep the world somewhat governed and restrained in their evil. And that's what our nation now wants to throw off. Begin. It began a long time ago, but certainly began with the throwing of prayer, getting prayer out of school, and it's progressed from that point on. It's a, an attempt to throw off those fetters and these adversaries of God, but they will not go on forever. And that's what jo uh, Nahum is saying to us is here. Verse, not only does he avenge, but what he does as well as he reserves wrath. That second verse, second phrase in the verse there, 
and he reserves wrath for his enemies. I said this morning from Romans, he was talking about those who are not understanding that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. He says to them, do you not know that you're storing up wrath for yourself? And I was talking about how it builds up. But in this passage, he says, God is reserving it as well. Uh, every, every adversary who comes against God and is due or, or justified, God's justified in his condemnation of them. They are, they are building up, as it were, wrath, but God is reserving that wrath as well. He's not diminishing it. And that's a really important point this morning, and I want to reiterate that again. Uh, God's wrath doesn't dissipate when he calms down later on. Uh, I can get mad, me and Hope can have a fuss, and I can get mad and get some wrath built up, but once we calm down and more level heads, that wrath dissipates. It don't just stay there, it dissipates and goes away. I may get angry some other day, and she may get mad at me some other day, but we don't reserve wrath. Uh, God, God cannot dismiss the wrath that easily is in his perfections and the sins against his righteousness and his justice is deserving of the wrath of God. Therefore, for him to dismiss it and mitigate it without any solution whatsoever would be to infringe upon the very nature of God. So he's reserving the wrath. You're, you're building it up for yourself and your resistance to his kindness leading you to repentance. But at the same time, he's not getting rid of that wrath when he calms down. It is building and it is being reserved. That is a frightening thought. But that's what he does. It's what he does. In fact, all of these things are what the Lord does. And what I was sharing this morning and why I'm distinguishing these is because he does what he does out of who he is. And, and he's, he's in some, some sense bound to himself. He's not going to act outside of his nature. So all that he does is within, within his very nature. If he's a vengeful, vengeful God, it is out of his nature. If he's a wrathful God, it is out of his nature. It is out of, of a perfect nature, a sinless nature. So he reserves that wrath. I doubt very seriously, I was talking this morning, but I'm thinking this afternoon as well, but when I was lost and apart from Christ, I, I had no I had no sensibility to the idea that the wrath of God against my sinfulness and my rebellion was being amassed through those years. And by the time I was 29, it must have been, a, it must have been a, a, an ocean of the wrath of God awaiting me. I've shared my testimony many times. One of the distinctions between what I'd always felt in regards to guilty for sin was always related to what it cost me. I, I didn't like, I felt bad about sinning because you caught me <laughs> or I felt bad about sinning because it hurt someone else that I didn't really intend to hurt. I always, it was always a self-centered view of my sin. And, and even if I thought there was a God who forgive me, it was just so I could restore my sense of self-esteem and my sense of pride. The difference in regeneration was that I understood in that moment, or I at least got a glimpse in regards to what was actually due me. And you've heard me say this before, but the difference was that at the moment I felt the weightiness of my sin and the condemnation of it, I realized and, and almost utter, uh, verbally uttered it in my cry to God that if, if he were to pour out all that was due me and I would spend eternity in hell from there, I would have to bow my knee and acknowledge that he is indeed infinitely righteous. And I am exactly where I ought to be because I have sinned against that one. And that's, that's the difference. 
And he is reserving that wrath. So God wasn't dismissing wrath against me in my ignorance and in my sinfulness. He wasn't letting it go. It was being reserved. And I was, I was banking into that wrath account every single day in my rebellion against God, which leads me ultimately to where he ends up here in, in verse 15, sort of a forward looking to Christ here. But that's where Christ was magnified. That's where the work of the cross was really magnified and brought into clarity for me as I, as I began to realize how desperately and hopeless and helpless I was to extricate myself from this horrible condition of condemnation. So the Lord is avenging and the Lord avenges and the Lord reserves wrath. Close and akin to that, he says as well that the Lord does not leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord is, uh, he reserves wrath for his enemy. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord, verse three, will not, will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so those who are guilty of their sins will not go unpunished. I'm just emphasizing here, none of them, none of them. Uh, there's, there's, not, there's not some plea for ignorance all, the, all those who were guilty of sin will not go unpunished. In fact, uh, I was thinking in terms of the dying and cru being crucified with Christ in that sense, even the guilty united to Christ die with Christ. So in a sense, the, 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 the vengeance is exacted upon their sin on behalf of Christ and they're united to Christ. So we may not experience that condemnation as it were, but positionally speaking, we're crucified with Christ and it, as it were punished in Christ. He takes that punishment for us. We're raised to new life, but God will by no means relieve the guilty. It's interesting to me as he says by no means um, with, uh, withdraw the guilty or let go of the, those who are guilty. So that would suggest to me that there is, no, there is no means other than Christ by which he will let the guilty go unpunished. You can't check a few boxes. You can't come to church. You can't, you can't go to a Sunday school class. You can't uh, work for a charity. You can't, there's no means by which he will let the guilty go. God didn't say to us, if you check this box and you do this, 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 then I'll let you go. No, you're guilty. You and I are guilty by nature and we're guilty by commission and omission. All those together, we are full and ripe with guilt. And he by no means, by no, no category of things will dismiss the guilty. He will punish the guilty. And as I said this morning, there are only two places in which the guilty can be punished, will be punished. They'll be punished in Christ as it were, or they'll be, they'll be redeemed in Christ, or they'll endure the wrath of God and the judgment for their sins in all of eternity. And that's a sobering reality. So he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Uh, you think about that in terms of our world today. Uh, we seem to rank guilt. Uh, and in fact, there are among men, there are mitigating factors uh, you go into trial and one guy has a lot of mitigating factors and maybe his guilt, he's, he's just as guilty, but there's a mitigating factors involved. So one guy doesn't get the same sentence as the other. Justice says, well, there were some things involved that, that kind of, they don't excuse, but they at least explain his actions and maybe he was acting and he wasn't really aware and maybe it was more acting out of being wounded or so. So there's some circumstance that makes his crime not quite as bad, but the other guy, there are no mitigating circumstances at all. He's, he's guilty and he is willfully and defiantly guilty. Throw the book at him. We rank it that way. 
There is no ranking in the sense with God is that we are all guilty apart from Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here is all are guilty apart from Christ because we have all sinned and there is no way, there is no means by which the guilty will go unpunished. So there is that ahead of all those who are guilty and outside of Jesus Christ. That is a sobering, a very sobering reality. In verse 3 as well. Uh, really verse 3 through 6, he exercises his power in the world. In fact, he says there, in whirlwind and storm in his way, the clouds of the dust beneath his feet, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. The mountains quake because of him and the earth, the hills dissolve and the earth is upheaved by his presence. And I just, I'm just kind of capsulizing that. That is, that is descriptive language in regards to what he's just said. The Lord is, is power. The Lord is powerful. And so my, my, what I'm gleaning from that is he's saying here that the Lord manifests his power in the world. It's not, it's not some cosmic spiritual power alone. The power of God is manifest right here in the earth. Whenever God acts and judges and acts against his adversaries, the whole world is subject to become instrumental in that, whether it be by flood, which he says later on, or whether it be by earthquake or fire, all the elements, all that created order is at the, at the behest of God Almighty who can bring all of it to bear in his judgment. Think about, I thought about the the Egyptians who went to pursue the Israelites across the Red Sea and they looked there and they saw that he had commanded and the sea dried up, as he says later on. And the Israelites went through and the whole troop of them got through. And finally, I think the Pharaoh figures, well, it's dry. We're going to pursue them. We're not going to let them get away. So the Lord waits till they all get down in the sea. And then what has happens? He calls the sea back to close in upon him. So all the elements of the world, I think he's, so what he's getting at here is when the Lord acts in this way, when he takes his vengeance, when he pours out his wrath, when he holds the guilty accountable, all the universe is at his disposal to bring that to bear in the world. God's not just acting in some third dimension, some realm somewhere unrelated to this world. He is in this world and acting in this world. His power is being manifest in this world. In fact, in the incarnation, he came himself into this world. So these people that have this notion of, a, of some sort of notion of God and some spirit being out there that, that's kind of there to comfort us and bring us into another dimension or some sort of realm and all the psychic mumbo jumbo in regards to God, this God is the creator of all the universe and he has the power to operate or to manifest his power through those things. I used to love, uh, love those awesome sights of nature, even as an unbeliever. I love to go to the mountains and I love to go to the sea. I used to be, even as a kid, note how you could see the ark of the earth sitting on the beach, uh, the flatness there. You could actually see the ark of the earth. And I was fascinated and in awe of nature as even as an unbelieving child. But as a believer, when I see those things and I see that storm I was talking about this morning following us home to last night down Jennings Road, and I, I see those things and there's something in me that kind of trembles and recognizes there is a God who is in control of that and who, at whose very whim that thing could dissipate in a moment. 
And it could rise up in a moment and it could destroy whole cities or it could go through a, a field and out into the water and not hurt a single soul or an animal. God controls the storms. And so I think he's saying here, God manifests his power in the world. Not only his power, but God does this as well. In verse 5, he manifests his presence. Verse 5 says, the mountains quake because of him, the hills dissolve. And then this passage, indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. So we, we're thinking about his power and, and how he's in whirlwind. His path is in whirlwind and storm and the dust of his feet are like the clouds. So, so he's manifesting power, but the earth itself is trembling and upheaved by his presence. He makes not only his power known in the world, but his presence known in the world. Most, most clearly and most, most precisely in the incarnation in Christ himself. Notice it says there, Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. It says that not only is the earth, but he says the world and every inhabitant of the world is upheaved by his presence. Uh, that's, that's striking. In fact, the coming of Christ and even when you read the Gospels and, and, and Christ coming into the world seems to be such a disruptive thing. I mean, the, the creator of the world comes into the world and comes to speak to the world and to proclaim the gospel to the world. And he's controversial. They don't like him. They tell him to be quiet. Tell the children to be quiet. Don't you know that you're, you're in danger here and we're in danger of losing our place in the Roman occupation. It's an upheaval. Jesus himself said mothers would be against husbands or husbands against wives and parents against their children. It would, it would be a sword as it were. His presence brings upheaval in the world, and it brings upheaval among the inhabitants of the world as well. I love this part, but he makes himself as well. Verse 7, he makes himself a refuge for the faithful. He says, the Lord is good. He heard that one this morning, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He's a stronghold. That's what he is. And he knows those who take refuge in him. So he makes himself a refuge for those so the guilty won't go unpunished. God's wrath and power is manifest in his presence. The whole earth and all of its habitants are upheaved by the presence of the Lord. But that same Lord makes himself a refuge for those who trust in him. And it says he knows those who take refuge in him. So there is an intimacy. This God who is so massive and, and almost incomprehensible is capable of creating us and having fellowship with us. Intimacy and fellowship. And he makes himself the refuge for us. I thought about this because they're living, these who trust in the Lord are living in the same world that's in upheaval. They're living in the same world that experiences storms and floods and massive rock slides and earthquakes and volcanoes. They're inhabitants of that world. So in the midst of that world, he makes himself for them in that world a refuge. So they fly to God. They fly to him. And we find our refuge ultimately in Christ as well. So that's what God does. You don't make him a refuge. You don't 
create him as a refuge. You don't assign him a place as a refuge. He makes himself a refuge for us. He makes himself available or accessible to us in Jesus Christ. And so when the world goes all literally to hell in a handbasket, God is our refuge. Over and over the psalmist says that. I don't know about you, but when I watch the news and you go out and you see some of the things, I'm thankful for a refuge. I'm thankful for somewhere that I can go and have assurance that I am covered. And even if the, even if the God's judgment in this world catches me up in the midst of the judgment, it is to my good in that I will be in the presence of the Lord. He is my refuge. He is your refuge as a Christian, but he is not the refuge of the Assyrians. He's not the refuge of the guilty who, who, who he will not let go unpunished. They are not his refuge. And outside of that refuge, they are subject to the manifestation of his power and his presence in the world. And they will not escape the judgment of God. That's a sobering thing for the lost world, but it is a great comfort to the believer. To the believer. Hope and I were talking and I was, I was thinking along the lines of how the believer, I said it this morning, in, in one way, but when I read this, even as a believer, there is a trembling in me because it makes me realize just as I said this morning, how thin a razor I was walking on while I was building that wrath up. But I remember when I was a kid, I've told the story, but my brother would get in trouble and dad would come down the hall and he would always snap the belt because I knew what we were, knew what were coming. And I would, I would sometimes get quiet and tremble and I wasn't in trouble. I wasn't the one getting the, getting the whipping. My brother was. But I would have this trembling inside. And I think it was rooted in the fact that I know that I am as worthy and guilty of that whipping as he is. He got caught doing something that I probably didn't get caught doing. In fact, if dad wanted to come in and give me a whipping on top of him just to make sure he covered something I did that he didn't know, he would have been perfectly justified in doing that because I was guilty. I had no refuge. I was anxious. And so it is when God brings his wrath or brings his judgment upon the world. When you see the sinner fall and he falls hard, do you not tremble as a believer? I do. No matter if the man's a wicked sinner and, and he has a great empire and a great kingdom and I see him fall and fall hard and it stretches out into his family and the name is ruined as it were in the community. Even though I am, I am thankful that God vindicates his glory and his name and his honor and his righteousness, there is still a trembling within because I think to myself, there but for the grace of God go I. Because that is, I am more than worthy of that and even more than that, but for the grace of God in my life. So it ought to make us tremble. I get, by the way, I get the imprecatory Psalms. I get the vindication of the name of God. But this is a personal thing. You may not feel this way, but, but I, I am reluctant I am reluctant to feel gratitude at the fall of a human being into the judgment of God. I, I, I'm reluctant to feel good about that. I'm, I'm glad God vindicates his glory and his name. And as a believer, there's been often times when I look forward to the day that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, but when I witness someone destroyed under the heavy hand of God's judgment, I find no joy in that. I find no gratitude in that simply because I am a recipient of mercy. And it would have 
From my perspective, I would have been rejoicing much more had God's mercy saved that person out of that. Either way, God is glorified, whether in the exaltation of his righteousness or the exaltation of his mercy. But I'm reluctant to feel joy when I see someone fall under the judgment of God. So he brings himself to us as a refuge. In verses 8 and then again 9 through 12, and even verse 14 specifically to Nineveh, he brings to nothing his enemies. Brings to nothing his enemies. See in verse 8, but, the, but with an overflow. Notice this is right on the con, in the same context of saying, I am a refuge. <clears throat> a, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But in contrast to that, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. He's speaking, he's going back and speaking to the subject of his adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. So he will make a complete end of his enemies. In verses 9 through 12, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed. A stubble completely withered from you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. And thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. So the Lord does this. He brings his enemies to nothing, to nothing. He mentions, notice, you'll notice in verse 14 as well, speaking directly to Nineveh, the second phrase there, your name will no longer be perpetuated. You know what's involved in perpetuating your name? Offspring. <laughs> you perpetuate your name by having children. They carry the name, they have children, they carry the name. So complete was his judgment here, forecasted for Nineveh, and more broadly, generally in, in chapter 1 there as well, is that he will cut off your name. There is, there is no progeny. There is no, there is no fruit from you. I will bring a complete end to you. Your name, your reputation. In fact, I was reading somewhere, I think it was in the mid to late 1800s before Nineveh was ever discovered. God made a complete end of their sight. I mean, they just discovered it, I think it was 2,400 years later after its destruction. It was buried under the ground. It was, it was raised to the point to where it was unidentifiable. And it wasn't ever discovered by archaeologists all the way into the mid to late 1800s. And finally, somebody found some relics and some remnant of the city of Nineveh. That's a, that's a frightening thing to think about, that God, when he moves against his adversaries and his enemies, he says he will make of their sight nothing, and he will pursue them into darkness, and he will make an end of everything. They will not, they will not prosper against God. I wish the enemies of God and the adversaries of God would understand that in our day. I wish those who were developing policies and ideologies that are that are corrupting humanity and perverting everything that we hold valuable as Christians I wish they would understand that he will make an end of you you will not succeed in this though you enjoy some success for a season the end of that is utter ruin and eternal ruin he will make an end of that Whereas those who take refuge in him, we have an eternal inheritance. 
We have an inheritance in Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. There's no end. There's no end to us, but he will make an end of them. They will not prolong their days upon the earth and they will not prolong their joys and their satisfactions of their lust. He brings to nothing his enemies. Then those same verses, he thwarts or brings to an end all their devices, which is where I was thinking about Psalm 2, all their devices and their plotting. Notice he says there, whatever you devise, verse 9, against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. That's what brought my mind to Psalm 2. The kings of the earth and their rulers take counsel against God. And, and in the, the heart of their counsel, well let's, well, let's throw off all the restraints that he's put in place. Let's just ignore the word of God. Let's ignore nature and just let's be free. I heard a, a lady the other day, I, couldn't, I didn't catch her name, but she'd written a book. But she, she brought out a point to the news guy that was interviewing her. But she made the point that freedom is a means to an end. It is not the end. If it's, if it's just the end... Then, then it's hard to argue against people doing whatever they feel like doing. If freedom is the goal in the United States, then everybody should, should just do what they feel like doing. And if you try to prevent them or tell them it's wrong, you're, you're, you're encroaching upon their freedom. And she was positing the idea that no, freedom is a means to something greater, which is harmony and unity and ultimately in a Christian context, the glory of God and civil government. Freedom is a means to achieve that end. It is not the end itself. And we lost sight of that. And this, that's what the rulers were doing. They were saying, let's throw off these fetters and be free for, for real. Let's be free of God, free of moral constraint, free of moral impulse at all. Let's just every man go do that which is pleasing in his own sight. So we devise what you will against the Lord. Nahum says here, the Lord says through Nahum here, he will bring it to nothing. He will bring it to nothing. And that's what we see so many times. I, I, I was reading some statistics, and one of, the, one of the things they would say to some of the transgender issues, that they would manipulate the parents in saying things like, would you rather, they'd say they have a young girl who's confused about her gender or a young boy, and they bring them to the, the doctors, and the doctor says to the parents, would you rather have a living son or a dead daughter? In other words, if you don't let them transition to what they feel like they are, they're going to take their own own lives and you're going to have a dead son or daughter and rather than have a living one that thinks they're another sex and how manipulative and corrupt that is and and the end result is it ends in nothing that confusion that throwing off of restraints leads to this discouragement and despair and depression and it probably contributes even more to the taking of their own lives and I'm convinced of this if we see this go much further we're going to see suicide rates jump skyrocket because we are taking taking away every moral boundary or anchor from those. And without those, there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing predictable. There's no expectations. The whole world is chaotic. And we'll become so overwhelmed in our despair. Even in the book of Revelations, when God's judgment is coming upon the earth, you remember what it says of them? They will cry out to the rocks, fall on us. We want to die. This is so Un, un, unconceivable that we don't even want to live. Take our lives. We can't endure this, this utter nothingness. And that's where 
we're leading, Nahum says of God's judgment, that they can devise all that they will against God. Let the brightest minds and the most intellectual in the world and in the universe devise, get together, and conspire to bring their plans against God. He will bring it to nothing. He will bring it to nothing. Uh, I had an occasion not long ago when something was going on and I was feeling kind of fretting about that and trying to navigate and, and trying to figure out how I needed to deal with that, even down to trying to choose and select right words that would communicate right things. And, and I just felt overwhelmed with that. And as I was getting in the car and starting down the road, the thought came to me, Lord, Lord, this is, this is in your realm. You take care of that. You just take care of that. I can't, I can't navigate it. I don't have sovereignty. I don't have omniscience or omnipresence. Lord, I don't have any of the qualities or characteristics to navigate this in a way that would honor you. I'm just, I'm taking my hands off of that and you work it out. And you know what was amazing? Within days, the issue resolved itself. I didn't have to say a single word. Didn't have to say a single word. It resolved itself. Devise what you will, adversaries, against the Lord. He will bring it to nothing. You may persecute Christians. You may, you may even wipe out whole segments of the population in your agenda to achieve something, some ideal that you're pursuing. But in the end, he will bring it all to nothing. For what will you have gained? What was a man gained if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What will you have gained? Nothing. So let the enemies and the adversaries of God be reminded that not only will he bring them to nothing, but all that they devise and plot against him, he will bring to nothing as well. Verse 12, along that line as well, but he says of their strength, I love this because he's, I think he's talking here to Judah. It says, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. And he goes on to talk to Judah here as well. So I think that's an encouragement to Judah. Judah looks at Assyria. They're massive. I was looking at this map that had it grayed in all their territory. And I mean, it was massive. I mean, they were all the way, all the way down past the Fertile Crescent, all the way down into Egypt. I mean, they were massive. I mean, they had power, they had armies, they had numbers. There was no way that any army by normal statistics could have ever conquered the Assyrian Empire. They were strong and mighty and fierce warriors. And the number of them was almost un uncountable. And so the Jews had to be thinking to themselves, those in Judah had to be thinking to themselves, Lord, how are, you say this is true and, and we believe you and we trust that it was true, but how could it be that such a nation as this could be brought to nothing and made nothing? How can now all their counsel be brought to nothing, Lord? How, how can that happen to such a nation? And it's almost as if the Lord through Nahum is comforting them here and reassuring them, though they are at full strength. I'm not talking about a, a minimal or, a, a, or an excursion or some sort, of, some sort of guerrilla party over here. I'm saying, though they mass themselves in full strength, every man in his armor aligned against the Lord God. Let them mass themselves in full strength and let their numbers be ever so many. Even so, they will be cut off and pass away. You remember in Hezekiah, and Sennacherib comes up against the city, 
and, and threatens the city. And uh, if you read that, he's just mocking God, mocking Hezekiah. No other nation's gods have ever delivered them, Hezekiah. What makes you think that your God can do that? And he's just insulting the Israel's God, insulting Hezekiah, just mocking. Why wouldn't he? He's got the most massive army on the earth and no other kingdom, no matter how grand, could possibly stand against him. And Isaiah or Hezekiah prays to the Lord. And you read the whole story and at the end of that, not a single Israeli soldier lifts a hand against this Sennacherib. In fact, 185,000 are taken down by the angels of the Lord and they flee away and they never step foot inside of the city of Jerusalem. God fought the battle for them and delivered them supernaturally out from under the hand of the mightiest king on the planet with all of his armies. He did exactly hear what he says he was going to do. Though they are many and though they be strong in their number, they will be cut off and pass away. I love this as well, but he overwhelms every strength and every number, but he also extends mercy and deliverance to his own. He says to the, those in Judah, so now, <clears throat> he says to them, though I have afflicted you, and they had been afflicted, even at the writing of this, they were currently under affliction. He says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. That's coming to a conclusion. That's where I say you read Isaiah chapter 10. Because God says clearly there, he has used them to afflict his people. But that day was coming to a conclusion there. I will afflict you no longer. Now, Assyria, you're going to give an account. And Isaiah chapter 10 speaks about the accounting to give there as well as this letter as well. So this affliction that they had suffered was from God and he used a wicked nation to bring about this affliction. But he, his assurance here is that he would afflict them no longer. In fact, verse 13, so now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and will tear off your shackles. And so God is these things we shared this morning and God does this. In fact, in, in many ways, you were under the oppressure of a far greater adversary than, than a king Sennacherib or, or any other Assyrian king. You were under the oppression of the adversary of God himself uh, that makes him adversary of God, Satan. You were under the power of Satan and you were under the oppression of Satan. How much greater is your deliverance from that? Because he could amass the armies on the earth as well. In fact, the Bible speaks of him as the ruler of this world. And we have a deliverance in that as well. And though the Lord may afflict us with his hand of discipline to draw us near to himself and to set us apart unto himself, though he may afflict us, there comes a time when he will afflict us no longer. And that adversary will finally be defeated and he will break his yoke bar from upon us and tear off the shackles that we once wore. He did that in conversion as well. So he extends mercy and deliverance to his son. It's interesting to me, now he speaks in verse 14, a direct command. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. This is, now he's speaking directly to Nineveh. In fact, I, like I said, I think in the first part of this chapter is a broader application. This is God. This is who he is. This is what he does. I'm, what I'm about to tell you is rooted in the very character and God acting consistently with his character. So it's not out of character for God to act in the way that I'm about to describe. Now, now that he's established that and comforted Judah, he turns directly to Nineveh. The Lord has issued a command concerning you, Nineveh. I'm saying Nineveh, and it's not in the text. 
Your name, this is that passage, your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. That's the, that's a summary judgment on Nineveh. That's the, that's the outcome. Your lame will no longer be perpetuated. I've already described the description, the, the destruction there so, so thorough that only in the mid 18 late or late 1800s did they ever even find any remnants of it. So thorough was its destruction. That's the judgment. A decree has gone out against you, Nineveh. And think about this, a mere 100 to 150 years since they repented and found mercy with God and in the preaching of Jonah. How quickly we drift back into our sinfulness, right? I shared this morning, one of the big lessons I take away from this is the, is the ideal of, of, of generational and ongoing attitude of repentance in regards to our sins. Because if you let those pile up, the thing about that is it hardens your heart and you become less sensitive to sin and you let that pile up and you get even more hard and somewhere down the way you've seared your conscience to the point that you're no longer even sensitive to sin and you're doing all that and you are just storing up wrath for yourself. And if you're a Christian and you get that hard-hearted, you are storing up a heavy rod of discipline for you. And the Lord may bring even an Assyria into your life to bring you back to himself because he will not let his children go uh, in that sort of rebellion before he calls them back to himself. He ends in verse 15, I think, with the, with the very source of the him being a refuge and the mercy that he was extending to Judah and all those things by declaring this message uh, prior, uh, prior to the Christ. I think there's a parallel here as well in regards to the mission ministry of Christ. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. So he's saying this to Judah. Says, so celebrate your feast, Judah. Pay your vows for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. I think the immediate context he's speaking there of Nineveh and the one on the mountains is the message that Jonah or Nineveh or the Nahum has brought to them. Nineveh is going to be destroyed and taken away. Rejoice, Judah. Celebrate your feast and give the Lord the praise and the glory of honor because Nineveh, they're not coming through this city ever again. They're done. They are over. They have made themselves an adversary of God and God for a long while endured their wickedness and used them as an instrument to sanctify his own people. But at the conclusion of that, these people are done. They are ripe for his judgment and he will pour out his judgment in ways that he goes on to describe in chapters 2 and 3. So it is a serious, it is a serious matter to be outside of Christ and to be subject to that fury of God's judgment at any moment. It is a really serious thing. And more, isn't it a blessed thing to be united with Christ? And that judgment has passed. Uh, we, we do not face the pouring out of the wrath of God. Do we face discipline in this life and sanctification? Absolutely. Absolutely. When we sin, the Holy Spirit will convict us. God may even providentially and circumstantially uh, rebuke us through those things. And all that is to our good that we be transformed to the image of Christ. But man, in Christ, our judgment has been removed. He has absorbed and received all that was due us in our guilt. And we have been crucified and raised to new life with Jesus Christ. Judgment is no more for us. What a blessed, blessed place to be standing in in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Yeah, I think he means the distress caused by their, their rebellion because I think he's speaking there to Judah or not to Judah, but to Nineveh or those adversaries of God. They cause distress in the world. You've caused your distress. It won't rise up twice. It's done. Not again. I think that's still in the context of speaking because it's in the context of those who devise evil against the Lord. So I think it would be included in that, the distress. Um, you, could, you could make a lot of comments on that. Look at the distress in the world now uh, because of the adversaries of God. And he's essentially saying to them, it won't rise up twice. It's raised up once and you've made devastation and you've wreaked havoc in the world. Not again. You're done. <laughs> You're done. So stay with me tonight. So thank you for being here. I, I know that's kind of repetitive of this morning, but I want to distinguish between what he says God is and what he says God does and, and why I think he does that to root what God does in the very nature and character of God himself. Father, we thank you for your word again. Lord, I thank you for, for the cross, for the mercy. Lord, I thank you that in Christ our judgment has passed. He has been received in full by Christ and, and the debt has been paid. And we have been risen, raised to new life with Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you for the, for the life that we're living now in sanctification and transforming us by increments and by degrees to the image of Christ. And, and this assurance and hope that one day we will be transformed to that image and we will um, glorify you in that state. And so, Father, I thank you for that great hope. And, and Father, our hearts tremble and, and shake in many ways for the wickedness of this world and the wicked in the world. So many deceived and have grown up all their lives thinking that the way the, of the world is the normal way that people live. And Lord, our hearts are heavy at times when we think of all those who will fall under that judgment. And so, Father, we just pray that you might send grace and revival in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may call many to yourselves. And, Father, on the other end, we look forward to the day as well that your name will be vindicated, as Philippians says, that that day when every knee will bow of things in heaven and things on the earth and things under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. And so we rejoice in that vindication of the name of Christ and of the faith that we have placed in Christ as well. So bless those who have come tonight, Father. I pray that you would draw us near to yourself. Help us to be lights in this dark world. Lord, help us not to disengage and cloister together in some, um, some private place somewhere, but to live our life fully and faithfully in the presence of darkness. And Lord, help us to endure when persecution comes because of that as well. So bless those who've come tonight, Lord, in their, in their lives this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.